This season of Hello Nature is brought to you by the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness, the ultimate expression of the legendary capability of the Outback line. In addition to its 9.5 inches of ground clearance, the Outback Wilderness is loaded with off-road ready upgrades to take you further than ever before. Adventure elevated with the Subaru Outback Wilderness. I ask every guest on this show what their first memory in nature was. First memory. The more important memory. My very first experience with nature. I think camping comes up. Spend time with the big family out on the, the lake. When I went kayaking on Lake Michigan. Swinging from the vines, jumping across the creek, praying in the water. To walk around, hike around, swim, play games, and just be around other people. I mean, that is that was childhood. So naturally, I started thinking, what's my first experience in nature? And what I remembered was this time in the third grade in Karachi. We were in class, and all of a sudden, the ground started rumbling. The room shook violently for a second, and then slowly rolled for a minute or so. The lights flickered off, and I was giddy with excitement. My first earthquake, how fun! The teacher was super scared. She announced that we had just had a 5.0 earthquake and school was canceled for the day. Our parents were on their way to come pick us up. When my dad opened the car door, I jumped in. Baba, Baba, it was so fun. My dad was really weirded out. Fun, Mitty? Yeah, I wish it kept going. He still tells the story to this day, how I was in awe of the earthquake, of nature, Of course, at the time, I didn't know that earthquakes were really dangerous, that the buildings in Pakistan weren't built for them, I didn't know that the country was ripe for them, or that in a few years, earthquakes would hurt, kill, and destroy large parts of my home country. No, I was just a city kid. My only experience with nature was playing cricket in the streets, having a dog at home, and racing paper boats in the runoff water from monsoon rains. Nature, to me, felt like this really magical thing. Nature was lightning bugs. It was the snakes in the buckets of street charmers. It was turtles swimming out of the ocean that we could pick up and play with. Nature was the fun little roller coaster that got me out of school for the day. As I've grown up, I've started to see nature differently. It isn't always fun. Sometimes it's scary. But it is still awe-inspiring. And it's healing. When I'm in nature, I feel like my soul is going to the doctor. But it's taken a lot of work to get to this point. As a teenager, the part of me that was scared of it got bigger. The less I saw people like me in nature, the less I wanted to try. The less I allowed nature to heal me. But for the last five years, I've been trying. I feel like I deserve to take up space, to claim my right to be in nature. And I've learned so much. I'm a lot more comfortable. I'm so comfortable that I'm going camping by choice. I'm setting up my tent in Angel Island, right in San Francisco Bay. Where this loop starts, so let's go back to that. (laughs) Go back, go back. (laughs) This episode, we're camping outside of Oakland on Angel Island, the ancestral home of the Huku Echo Tribe of the Coast Miwok Group. And we're exploring how nature heals us from childhood to adulthood. 
and why that's so important specifically for people of color. This is Hello Nature from REI Co-op Studios and Subaru. I'm your host, Misha Youssef. For a lot of the kids that I work with, they didn't go to nature. Their parents didn't go to nature. Focus moving from inside of you and ruminating on your personal issues. Lots of students were coming with additional traumas in their lives. To suddenly being aware that you are very small in the world and that you are part of something grand. It's just healing. It's just healing being out there. got excited about which one we were doing. <laughs> Once we settle in, Stephanie and I go on a hike. Stephanie's our senior producer. Freaking mountain. <laughs> Let's get to the top of this lovely mountain I love so much. We took way too long hanging out with the sea otters. and the- We watched the sea lions napping on the beach. Oh, no, they're sea lions. I get to come out here and leave my problems here in the grass, in the water, in the land. That night, I lay in my hammock, and I look up at the stars, and I feel small, part of something so much bigger. What would little Misha think of this? Would her awe have turned into belonging out here? Would she have kept that spark of excitement about nature? Would bugs feel like magic friends and earthquakes like roller coasters? I guess I'll never know. But Jessica Oya and Zotunde Morton are making sure that other kids know. Jessica and Zotunde are outdoor educators, and they are making sure that other BIPOC kids experience healing in nature starting now, when they're young, especially when things at home are hard. We'll get to hear Jessica Oya and Zotunde Morton's story after the break. Angel Island is such a beautiful and wild state park, right in the middle of the San Francisco Bay. Camping there was a dreamy experience I'll never forget. Clean, safe spaces outside make it possible for leaders like Zotunde and Jessica and their organizations to continue making positive change. And they need the help of companies and organizations to help preserve these outdoor spaces. That's where Subaru comes in. Subaru is the largest corporate supporter of the National Park Foundation and has provided over $70 million to organizations working to preserve our parks. That's enough to help protect 84 million acres of land, including places where youth can go to bliss out in nature. If you want to learn more about how Subaru supports the parks, check out Subaru.com environment. there and look at it I think let's let's at least move out of the office part um yeah no everybody's seen me like do the gear library tour a hundred times they're always like let's walk over I'm standing in the middle of a room hundreds of snowshoes hang from the ceiling like bats sleeping bags line racks tightly wound in their cocoons and rows of jackets tents and trekking poles greet me and Stephanie. So you can see there's like humongous piles of sleeping bags. That's pretty much all of this is humongous sleeping bag piles, our tent wall. And then over here we're at the Oakland office of Bay Area Wilderness Training. 
It's a nonprofit in the Bay Area that helps get local kids and teenagers outside. And we're standing in the middle of their library, which is not a normal library, as you might be able to tell. This is a gear library. Amy Cummings is the manager of the gear library. With the, I don't know if someone talked about the train. The train it's massive, and it's free. It's one of the Bay Area Wilderness's biggest programs. Also, I'm going to call them Bot for short. That's why the founder of Bot really was really serious about the gear library being the most important thing for lowering barriers to access. So let's say you're a teacher at a public school. You want to take a group of kids camping. Bot will train you. They'll make sure you have access to other teachers who've done this, mentors in the outdoor space who can answer your questions, and they will lend you as much gear as you need to take the kids outside. And they've made this an official thing. They have a huge partnership with the Oakland Unified School District. And they call their partnership Oakland Goes Outdoors. The goal was really to reach more kids and for it to be equitable. Jessica Oya is the project coordinator for Oakland Goes Outdoors. Oakland being in the Bay Area, you've got areas that are really wealthy and have access to these spaces and areas that just don't. If you're not familiar, the Bay Area is the tech hub of the United States. We're talking Facebook or Meta, we're talking Uber, we're talking Google. All the biggest tech companies moved and have been moving to San Francisco and its surrounding cities like Oakland for the last few decades. And it's brought a lot of money into the region, which has created a big gap between the rich people who now live here and the people who have always lived here. Anyway, I interrupted Jessica. And you just have miles and miles of concrete and no trees. And, and it's all within the same city. And so I think the goal was really, how do we get kids to see what's in your backyard? My family was, were, were big-time campers. Zotine Morton is one of Jessica's co-workers. And he's very familiar with the nature in his backyard. My dad and mom had a camper, my uncle had a camper, and whoever didn't, they just brought out their tents and being out there with my cousins. And it was it was good times. I, just, I had a lot of cousins around my age. My mom has seven siblings, and so there was a lot of us out there. And I just remember being out there and seeing bats at night and just parents having that old school Motown on. It was just good times. And for... For me at that age, it was just it was just very free because there were no walls, there were no boundaries, so much to engage with. The idea of barbecue and being at a green space or at a park or in the woods or wherever it is, there's just something, I don't know, it probably goes back thousands of years. It's probably <laughs> in our DNA that this is where we're supposed to all come together and connect. Camping was always a part of his life, so when he gets to college, he starts inviting his friends out with him. But he keeps getting the same response. I haven't been camping before. Like, that's not what Black people do. And, you know, just realizing how many people don't have that experience is not as common as I, as I thought it was, especially for people that, that like are in my community and for African Americans. So what I realized was that for a lot of youth, if their family doesn't go, they're likely not going to get exposed to it, which also 
really got me to be passionate about getting youth outdoors. So he starts thinking of ways he can help kids have these transformative experiences in nature, even if their parents aren't so into it. One of the best ways to, um, to get kids through the outdoors at, on a larger scale is through the school system, because that's where everyone goes. <laughs> so if you can expose them at the school, that's where you're going to reach the most people and probably have the biggest impact. He finds out that there's a program that's doing just that. Oakland goes outdoors. Zotunde gets involved. And he works with all kinds of kids, especially kids who... Often get in trouble in class, but oftentimes when we were going to do a field trip, I would have teachers that would be like, this child can't go because they've been, they've been getting too much trouble. I'm like, this one needs to go the most. And I'm like, well, we don't trust that they're going to be safe. And I'm like, well, most of the things that they get in trouble for, being quiet and not being still, is okay out there. Like, they're actually going to flourish, and they need to have times where they actually are flourishing and not getting in trouble like this. Other than hitting someone with a stick or throwing a rock at somebody, like, you know, there's not too much that I'm going to say no to as long as you're within eyesight. Just like, actually, you'll be surprised. You just sit back and just watch them and just picking up sticks and, like, sure, they, they start finding so many fun things with this nothing just or just observing and just experimenting and getting their hands dirty, you know, <laughs> or seeing some bug that they've never seen before or some animal up close. For a lot of the kids that I work with, they didn't go to nature, their parents didn't go to nature, and that they don't get that on a, on a regular basis. It's just healing. It's just healing being out there. Not even necessarily doing anything, it's just healing to be there. And we can take it a step further. Early exposure to nature can be healing for kids, but it's also healing for the land. I remember the first time I went backpacking and it's with Bot. They're like, you got to pack out everything you pack in. Like, you have to pack out all your trash. And I remember just hiking for miles. We were out there for five days, and there's literally no trash. And it's like, it's just pristine. It's clean. And I remember coming back to Oakland, it was almost kind of depressing on the street where I lived at and the neighborhood that I lived at. I would spend two or three minutes every day picking up trash out my yard that I didn't put there. But just thinking that if everyone did their part, how much cleaner the space would be. Remember Zotunde's coworker Jessica? If you don't know it, if you don't see it, if you don't care about it, why protect it? This is especially important to her because she's one of those kids who didn't grow up in nature. She didn't know about nature's impact on her or her impact on nature. She had a common experience for kids of color. Her parents just weren't into hiking and biking and camping outside. They really like sleeping inside. So... Her first memory in nature really isn't until she's a teenager. I must have been in high school, like 15, 16. And we went to the Grand Canyon, and I'd never seen anything that big or cool. It was, it was the colors, and it was the layers, and it was just how deep everything went. I wanted to see everything up close, and I wanted to go down to the bottom. But it was the middle of summer, so it was, like, not a good time to go. My parents are not big hikers, and so they're like, no, you're going to die of the heat, and please don't go down there. And she has this feeling that I had when I experienced my first earthquake. As a high schooler, things feel really small. You, like, go to school, you, like, do your homework, you, like, play some sports, you do the things that your parents want you to do. And that was really the first time that I was like, oh, there's a much bigger place outside of just, like, the couple miles that I travel every day. This is the first big moment when she experiences awe. A decade passes, maybe more. Jessica is now a science teacher. 
No wonder she was so interested in rocks when she was a kid. She's teaching at a school that serves a lot of people of color. Her school's part of the Oakland Unified School District. So lots of students were coming with additional traumas in their lives. And school, for many of them, was a pretty stable place. So students could show up to school and they'd know what to expect. There was a pretty strong outdoor program where at the end of the school year, for the last two weeks, we would kind of do summer campy things. And one year, Jessica and the math teacher partner together. They decide to lead a two-week bike trip during the last two weeks of school. A 550-mile bike ride from Oakland all the way up to Avenue of the Giants and back. Okay, so not just a normal bike trip. I think that sounds a little bit nuts, but sure, let's try it. So they go out to the students and tell them about this trip. They want to know who wants to join. Almost 20 kids sign up. Some of these kids had never, like, they didn't know how to ride a bike before we started. Teaching the kids how to ride was one thing, and that was, like, great and took a a lot of work. But also, like, planning out a route and making sure that we had enough gear and enough food. Where does one even find all this gear? And for prices that are affordable? I was crowdsourcing all these tents and sleeping bags for my friends. And I was like, I promise I'll bring them back, okay? Like, hoping that that would be the case. The day of the trip arrives. We gathered at school. There was, like, probably a good portion of the school, like, came out to see us off because it was just such... No one had done something like this before. Everyone's there to see what happens. Is Jessica going to pull this off? All these students are just going to ride their bikes and disappear into the horizon? And then, like, we got on our bikes and they just rode away. Yep, that's exactly what they did. Jessica and the math teacher pulled it off. They and the 20 students just rode away and lived happily ever after. Let's be real. This is a trip with 20 teens. Of course, it wasn't happily ever after. I could have 100% set up kids better so that, like, they felt more successful setting up a tent. It was a struggle to get them to put on a helmet. It was a struggle to get them to, you know, not be teenagers. And then two days into the trip, Jessica gets a call. A junior at the school was shot and killed. He was supposed to be on the trip with us and then didn't end up coming, so it was, like, especially tragic. People start wondering about home, but they are pretty far into the trip. Maybe this is where they need to be so they can grieve here together. What are you going to do? Like, there's no point in going home. Like, let's just continue, like, this trip. So they keep pedaling forward. All they could do was ride, and they couldn't, they couldn't get into a lot of trouble that I'm sure that they might have found themselves in if they were back in Oakland. They spend two weeks together outside. Biking, camping, hiking, talking about their loss. We had a community circle every single night, but, you know, it was, you know, on more lighthearted topics. But there was time for students to process and there was times for students to be together. That first trip changed how Jessica thinks about taking kids outdoors. Being in nature is not just about experiencing awe. Being in nature is also about healing. It was healing for her kids to bike from place to place, to set up camp in new spots every night. It was healing for her students to be in a community together, to process their pain and their grief together, and to do it in nature. She wants kids 
all over Oakland to experience that. And kids of all ages. Both Jessica and Zotunde have seen firsthand how healing nature can be. But you know when you start to talk about something so much, it starts to sound cliche? I feel like that about this idea that nature is healing. I feel like I've heard people say it over and over. It's kind of lost its power. I believe it less. It's like when I'm having a bad day and someone tells me to take a walk. Like, thanks for the profound words of wisdom. Never heard that one before. And it's like walking isn't going to solve my problems. So I stay inside all day. And I keep feeling miserable until finally I cave. I take the damn walk. And it's like magic. I feel better. Even if it's a teeny tiny bit better. And sure, nature doesn't do our taxes for us and doesn't fold that pile of clothes on our bed. Okay, maybe that one's just super specific to me. But it does center us. It centers me. It makes my problems feel smaller. It gives me perspective. It works. Like, scientifically, it works. You're activating your vagus nerve and you're going into the parasympathetic system. Things that people do through meditation or mindfulness. But it turns out that being in nature is a shortcut to mindfulness. Okay, so Stephanie talked to Dr. Rosani. Tell me about your conversation, Stephanie. It was so great. So, Dr. Razani. Nusheen Razani. She's a pediatrician and a clinical scientist, and also... Associate Professor of Epidemiology and Biostatistics and Pediatrics at UCSF. I founded and direct the Center for Nature and Health, which is at UCSF, and we our flagship program is at Children's Hospital Oakland. It is called Shine, Stay Healthy in Nature Every Day. Okay, so it's a super cool program that Dr. Razani helped start at the Children's Hospital. And it's a nature prescription program that has supported low-income families in accessing nature for stress relief and resilience. And I'm happy to say that April is our ninth year doing nature outings. So we've been able to experience the awe of nature with thousands of families. So how did Dr. Razani get to this point? How did she end up leading these super cool nature-focused programs? Well, as usual, it all goes back to her childhood. I was born in the U.S., but I spent ages pretty much zero to five in Iran. And the Iranian culture is very nature-based. The cultural traditions, which actually transcend religion, so everyone in the country practices them, are all based on the seasons. So our biggest holiday is the spring equinox, and almost every month we have a celebration. I know about this. It's called Nowruz. It's the start of the new year. Yeah, it turns out Iranians don't just celebrate spring. We celebrate each turning of the seasons, and the way that people enjoy nature is usually in the context of family and community. In fact, there's a day two weeks after New Year's. It's called 13th day out. That's the exact translation. It is a mandatory outdoor day when everybody has to go on a picnic. And if you live in places where there's there are a lot of Persian people around the beginning of April, you will smell kebab in many of the parks because <laughs> everyone has to go out with their family. 
But then Dr. Rosani's family moves to the U.S. Oh, my God. Like me. Dr. Rosani moves here when she's five. And I dealt with a lot of things like family separation and just the trauma of what happened inside of Iran to our family. I moved to Los Angeles where we actually lived in Venice when we first immigrated. And I think I spent two years wearing roller skates every day on the Venice boardwalk. And I really had a deep connection with the ocean. My relationship with the Pacific Ocean has really sustained me through many things. And many times when I couldn't be around the people that were dear to me, I was able to connect to the spaces and the ocean. And then Nushin turns nine, and she has this big transformative experience. So she's in the fifth grade. My public elementary school raised money, and we went to Yosemite. I've described it before, like falling in love. I remember driving into the valley, and I remember the feeling of majesty and just the word we use in the literature is awe, but I think it's a very spiritual experience, and it helped me feel connected to something bigger than me. And for a child who had to deal with displacement, it really gave me a sense of home and belonging, just to be part of that grand thing. So she gets kind of curious about that feeling. Actually, we're trying to really understand what that feeling is because it's what we want to recreate for our patients. But in terms of what the researchers look at to define awe, there are um, questionnaires that look at things like how internally focused you are as opposed to how externally focused you are. I think the technical definition is a feeling almost of fear or overwhelm, but it's also positive. I mean, that's what I've felt every time I've been in nature. Yes, and you're not the only one. It's actually a thing, a thing that scientists like Dr. Rosani are studying. It is the feeling of the focus moving from inside of you and ruminating on your personal issues to suddenly being aware that you are very small in the world and that you are part of something grand. Can you only experience this feeling in those big moments? Because I feel like one of the things we've realized this season is that it's not just about those big moments in like a far away wild place, right? Yeah, for sure. And Nushin actually realizes that. I think the awesome part of nature is very important. But I do want to remember the beginning of my story, which was the small little ways nature was part of my life. And I think it's important not to discount everyday nature and how important it is to have that connection with the life cycle and other living beings in everyday life. And that that is extremely valuable for a child, even if they can't get to Yosemite. Those small moments are actually so big for her. It helped me, and I think it helps children, just connect with myself. And it turns out that the ability to be present in your own emotions and tolerate your own emotions is really, really important. I remember times when I was stressed and I would watch the waves. And now we have words for what happens there, which is basically that you move from fight or flight into a more relaxed state, 
It's actually a whole process going on in your body. You're activating your vagus nerve and you're going into the parasympathetic system. Things that people do through meditation or mindfulness, it turns out that being in nature is a shortcut to mindfulness. There has been research showing that many children need time alone just in safe spaces that are outdoors to process what's happening to them. And I think there are many internal mechanisms for resilience that have to do with play that kids are missing out on because they don't have access to just safe refuges outside um, to play and to connect with the natural world. There's also a really wonderful study that came out of UC Berkeley by Dr. Keltner, who does a lot of the work on awe. And it was with veterans who went on river rafting trips. And they actually measured oxytocin inside of each boat. And oxytocin is the love hormone. And what they found is that people in the same boat would have similar levels of oxytocin. Part of that may be that they just went through something big together and um, achieved a challenge together. And part of it may be that they're in nature. So Nushin is a scientist and a mom. So she gets really excited about what's happening, specifically to young kids in nature. What does she find? So she reads this book. It's by Richard Louvre, and it's called Last Child in the Woods. It's about all the current research on children's health and how nature plays a role in it. I realized that in pediatrics, we spend so much time preventing disease. But what we take for granted is that the concept of childhood is present. But what I was experiencing and living is that we're we're trying to protect children, but there's like no childhood left. And she keeps researching. She finds all the super cool information. When you take an urban person and expose them to natural elements, it improves um, a few things about stress. So first, it improves their current amount of stress as measured by cortisol or whatever physiological response they're having. It seems to reduce the sympathetic pathway, which is the fight or flight pathway. It also seems to improve your reactivity to future stress. Each time you have a stressor, you get a surge of cortisol. And so being in and around nature seems to, you can buffer the current reaction you're having, but you're also better equipped to deal with future stressors. Really major stressors in the first 18 years of life can have a huge impact on many, many health outcomes including brain development, which really can lead to a shorter lifespan. Whoa. She's like, I got to do something. I got to get kids outside. And so I, I applied to UCSF and I made my own major. I said I want to study nature and pediatric mental health. Wait, is she still a practicing doctor? Yes. Isn't that wild? She's still working as a doctor at the Children's Hospital of Oakland. Basically, she's working as a pediatrician for a clinic for unhoused people, and she's working at a second clinic for immigrants and refugees. Oh my goodness, with kids? Yeah, she's basically a hero. So she's doing all these different jobs, and she starts to see that there's a way to combine them. 
She hears about this national program that trains doctors, nurses, therapists, basically medical professionals. And they train them on ways to get their patients outside. And they're called nature champions. (laughs) I know, it's a funny name. But basically, all these medical professionals around the U.S. take this course, they become nature champions, and they start partnering with local parks. To do what? To literally prescribe nature to patients. But there's a problem. There's some pushback from doctors and other healthcare providers. They're like, you're diagnosing the problem wrong. It's not about being told to go to nature. The issue is access. And so it's kind of trying to have a doctor solve the world's problems by telling people to go into nature when the reason they're not in nature is not because a doctor didn't tell them to go. It's because there's no trees and nature in there near them. But the park district, instead of giving up, they they leaned in and they kept asking, well, what can we do? And so what ended up happening is the pediatricians asked for nature to come into the clinic. And so the park district installed these huge posters of redwoods inside the clinic. They start decorating the entire clinic with these giant nature posters, beautiful lakes, mountains, forests. But all these posters are actually of parks nearby, places that the patients can go to. Oh my gosh, that's genius. And their goal is to inspire parents to take their kids to these places. Does it work? Yes. So parents actually do start asking about the posters. They want to know where these parks are and how to get there. Is the program still going? Yeah, it is. But it's also not like all of a sudden these families living in low-income neighborhoods have trees in their backyards. So accessibility is still an obstacle. In the Bay Area, there is a history of redlining, and there is, like, very purposeful designation of who can live where. And having nature in your neighborhood is actually a marker of privilege. And if spaces become more green, they often also become gentrified in terms of who lives there. And so that's something for those of us in this line of work to be really aware of, is the ways in which increasing nature in a neighborhood may actually raise house prices and displaced people. So they come up with a plan, a way around the accessibility issue. I love a problem solver. We asked for the park district to help facilitate the outings. And so that would mean transportation, food, and designated programming with a naturalist or recreation specialist assigned to our group. Yes, this is so great. Do people actually go? At first, not too many. In the beginning, it was like two or three families would come each time with my family and the naturalist. Then by the second year, uh, it kept growing. And then pre-pandemic, we were routinely at 60 to 70 people an outing. That's amazing. I mean, I'm not even at the best part yet. Remember Nushin's trip to Yosemite? Of course, the life-changing one. So there's this cool fact about these types of experiences about kids who have wilderness experiences before the age of 11. Ooh, what's the fact? I want to know. If you have wilderness experiences before the age of 11, you're more likely to become an environmentalist. And so there's actually a scale called love and care for nature. That feeling of love has its basis in a developmental milestone, which is called place attachment, which is really being able to feel connected to the space where you live. 
Whoa, let me see if I get this straight. If you're connected to the land, you experience healing, but you also heal the land. Yes, it's basically the scientific proof behind what Zotunde said. You build a connection to it, so you want to take care of it. Exactly. But if you're not connected to it, it's harder to care for it. I mean, I come from a people in the Middle East who are constantly being displaced. I mean, we have huge refugee crises. And I think, sadly, for much of the world, the displacement of indigenous people from where they live is a huge loss for environmentalism because that is generations and generations and generations of knowing how to live in harmony with a land. Is she saying that indigenous knowledge is being lost? Like, we don't know how to take care of the land because we haven't had a relationship with it for a very long time. Exactly. It takes time to build a connection to the land, to understand how to tend to it. It's not only that people are being displaced. I think in modern societies, many people don't have the luxury of spending their entire life in one place, um, which is really sad. If as a society we have lost that continuity, then I think we can now do it intentionally. But we do also need to create opportunities for people to steward little pieces of land to learn how to work with it and to, to have a sense of ownership over it. There are these tiny little ways to have ownership over pieces of land. For me, it started with something as small as growing a plant. I remember the first time I propagated a plant. It was four years ago when I started living alone. It was a pothos with the big dangly leaves. I Googled how to do it. Turns out you just cut it where you see a little root nub and put it in water. I was like, no way, that's not gonna grow roots. I washed it every single day through the little glass jar until a tiny little white hair came out of the nub. The next day, it got longer and then longer. More hairs started growing then a whole tangle of roots. To me, that's what nature does for kids. If you put them in nature, they grow roots. They feel connected and attached to the land. They're of a place, not just in a place. They get to know nature, to feel some ownership. It's a place where they can feel awe, like a part of something bigger. I think that's true, especially of kids who are experiencing a lot of adversity, a lot of trauma. Because feeling that awe in nature, it's not just about feeling connected, about feeling rooted. It's also healing. One of my oldest plants, a monstera, it got fungal gnats last year. And I was literally devastated. I had grown it so big, I'd had it for years. And then I looked up what to do. And they suggested cutting off the roots and propagating it. The same thing you do to grow a new plant. And skeptical me, I was like, what? It'll just start over? It'll just heal? But I watched it do just that. I watched as the nubs got longer and longer. Little threads got wider and stronger. Until one day, I realized the plant had new roots. Roots that were free of gnats. Roots that were ready to be potted into soil again. And so I took it out of the water and I put it in a pot. And I witnessed it grow bigger than before, with new leaves starting to unfurl right in front of me. I think that's the power of nature for kids, 
for all of us. It lets go. It heals. It grows. This episode is brought to you by Subaru. Did you know that since 2004, all Subaru vehicles have been manufactured at a zero landfill auto plant? That means that if you put a single bag of trash at your curb this week, you've sent more to a landfill than the Subaru of Indiana assembly plant will this entire year. I was able to visit Subaru's zero landfill auto plant earlier this year and was blown away by what I learned. Oh, wow. So exciting. The associates are the stars of this program. They created it and they continue to make it work every day. No manager, no vice president, no one can understand the process as well as that person who stands there on that line for eight hours a day, 238 days a year, doing that job over and over. And once you tap into that energy and once you ask the people, they'll tell you. They know. They know exactly what needs to be done. So they started coming up with ideas on in their own little portion of the line that they worked on every day, things that they thought could be improved for the environment. Thousands and thousands and thousands of ideas came in. And at the time we started, we were generating 459 pounds of waste for every vehicle we made. Now it's, it's around 210 pounds. There's a small amount that goes to a waste energy facility and the rest is recycled. Learn more about Subaru Zero Landfill Plant at Subaru.com slash environment. Hello Nature from REI Co-op Studios is brought to you by Subaru. It's produced by Dustlight Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Misha Youssef. Stephanie Cohn is the senior producer. This episode was written by me and Stephanie Cohn. It was sound designed by Jules Bradley with help from Valentino Rivera. Jules Bradley and Valeria Alarcon provided additional production help throughout the season. Valentino Rivera is the senior engineer. Carly Bond is the composer. Elizabeth Goodspeed is our art director and designer and did our artwork for the series. The illustrations on the artwork are by Joshua Ariza. From REI Co-op Studios, executive producers are Jenny Barber, Joe Crosby, and Hannah Boyd. If you're looking for a podcast that can change your life and inspire you to chase down your biggest, boldest dreams, check out REI Co-op's Wild Ideas Worth Living. Hosted by journalist, author, adventurer, and all-around curious person, Shelby Stanger, this podcast features stories from people who took the path less traveled and brought their wildest ideas to life. Some of the most popular episodes include The Wisdom of Expeditions with famous rock climber and mountaineer Conrad Anker, Ice Swimming with Melissa Kegler, and Life on a Highline with professional highliner Faith Dickey. Whether they're walking across America, breaking the fastest known times, summiting mountains, or breaking down barriers, guests on Wild Ideas Worth Living are all chasing something wild, something they're passionate about. Who knows? Tuning in may just inspire you to do the same. You can find Wild Ideas Worth Living wherever you listen to podcasts. Now go on and get out there.